0: Second John. If you find first John and take a right hand turn, you'll find it. And if you find third John, you've gone too far. Somebody say amen to that. Second John tonight, just thirteen small verses in this personal letter. We believe it is a personal letter. It is not an ecclesiastical letter. Uh, there are some that would hold that this letter is written in some sort of symbolic way to a church. I, I don't adhere to that. I probably would not call a man a heretic if he believed that, but I believe that when John says it's under the elect lady, I believe he is speaking specifically about a person. And uh, of all of John's writings, uh, the book of Second John is the most personal. When he writes the book of Third John, he writes it uh, to a man by the name of Gaius. And, and it is personal, but it deals very strongly with uh, what's going on in, in his church and, and in that local body. The book of Second John, no doubt there are sort of hints that this was a church-going woman and uh, that she, there was some instruction that maybe could be extended to churches, but it is a personal letter. And uh, I want us to look at a few things this evening. We'll read the entire chapter. It's just 13 verses, beginning in verse number 1. The Word of God says this, The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, And not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. For the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth, as we have received a commandment from the Father. And now I beseech thee, lady... Not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had had from the beginning, uh, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment, that as ye have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. For many deceivers are entered into the world, who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves, that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God speed. For he that biddeth him God's speed is partaker of his evil deeds. Having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, But I trust to come unto you and speak face to face, that our joy may be full. The children of thy elect sister greet thee. Amen. I want to read verses 1 and 12 once more, and I'll tell you why in a moment. The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. And verse 12, John says, having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the help, the strength that you've given us. Lord, your grace has been sufficient for today. I've seen it, Lord, sufficient beside uh, folks on their deathbeds. I've seen it sufficient for young families that are Facing expansion, Lord, I've seen it sufficient for those that are facing financial difficulties and big decisions and questions. Lord, I've seen it sufficient for those that are struggling with uh, decisions that they must make in life. And all these things, Lord, just in this cross sample of today, your grace has been sufficient. I want to praise you today for your goodness. I want to give you glory for your grace inasmuch as it's never exhausted. And it's always exactly what it needs and ought to be for my life and the lives of all those that know it. Lord, I pray that tonight you would use this word in our lives. Lord, I pray especially that you'd be a comfort to the Butterworth family, Lord, that they might find solace in you. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we read the book of 2 John, we've already noted that this is a personal letter that the Apostle John is writing unto this woman. We are not given her name. Some commentators would tell you that her name is sort of implied in there. But uh, I believe our Bible has it just as it ought to be. Somebody say amen to that. And uh, unless her name was elect lady, I don't think her name is given. I think that as John writes this, he tells us that he is writing to this woman uh, for a number of reasons. One, we are to understand this is a Christian person. Uh, he calls her the elect lady. And he does not necessarily mean by using that terminology that she is predestined or predetermined to choose Christ, but rather denoting that she is a different individual than those that do not know Christ, that her life has been changed that uh, she has favor with God, that God loves her, that God is protecting her and watching over her. And then he would have us know that this is a lady with children. I think the very same way that he uses the phrase sister in verse 13 is the same way as using the term lady in verse number one and a couple other places. I think it's a literal term. And you say, why would God tell us that? Well, I think sometimes we have a tendency to view the Word of God as this cold and uh, distant and remote thing. Maybe we view it as something that's good for the preacher, good for the missionaries. You know, it's good for the Bible teachers, good for a Sunday school teacher. They need that sort of thing. And uh, but let the church tend to those things. Let the preachers and the missionaries and the evangelists, let them tend to those things. And I'll just sit back and I'll just drink it in, soak it in. I'll just eat whatever's fed to me. But John is speaking specifically to this woman, to her family, about some of the decisions she must make, some of the stands she must take. In her Christian walk. Let me tell you something. Every one of us, if we're born again, we have a Christian walk. And that Christian walk is not to be lived vicariously through the pastor or the Sunday school teacher or even through the local church. Now, listen, I believe in the local church. Amen. I believe the only time God has on this earth are local churches. Somebody say amen to that. I understand there is a universal aspect to the church. I understand that everybody, once they're born again, they are placed spiritually within the body of Christ. But in as much as God operates through the church, I believe he operates through the local church. Let me tell you something. Your spiritual walk is not to be farmed out to be the responsibility of the local church. You have a responsibility to maintain that individual walk. And as he writes these things, there's a few words that I and a few statements I would have us notice before we get in to the preaching. Now, the first thing that I want you to notice is in verse number 12, he tells this woman that there's a lot more that he wants to say. Now, one could beg this question then. If he had a lot more to write unto her, why did he not just wait until he saw her face to face? He says, there are some things I want to tell you, but I don't want to write them on paper and ink. I don't know if that was because he didn't want to implicate her. I don't know if it was because he didn't want to get her in trouble. Christians were being persecuted left and right. Or maybe it's just because he understands that there are some things. Listen, if you ever have any of these text message conversations, you ever have any of those You know, there's some conversations better to be had face-to-face. Somebody say amen to that. And maybe that was the reason that John said this. But I do understand this. If there were things he wanted to write that he did not write, it is because he believed he would see her very soon. He says, I'm going to see you face-to-face. But then there's a flip side to that, which is this. If there are some things that could wait, that means the things we have right here are some things that couldn't wait. If John understood that he would see this woman face to face, he understood that he would be able to relate these things, then there are a handful of things and they occupy this little book of the Bible that he could not trust to wait any longer. John is an old man by this point. You'll have varying dates given for the writing of Second John. They usually are sometime between eighty and ninety A.D. And if if John was was uh, you know just fifteen years old when he walked with the Lord, and very likely he was older than that because he was a fisherman, he was an entrepreneur. But if he was just fifteen years old, uh, then that means that John is up. He's an old man by this point. Uh, there have been 50 years past. He is no doubt probably in his uh, 60s or 70s. John understands that he can't run as fast as the young men that run and carry letters. He understands the journey may be perilous for him. And there are some things he wants to say face to face. But a few things he says, these can't wait. I must share these with you. That ought to give us an urgency as we read the book of John that there are some things that John felt like could wait a little while. But these things he wrote must have gotten to her as soon as possible. You know, part of the reason I think that, uh, look at verse number one. I told you I'd tell you why we read those. Well, I've told you why we read verse 12, but look at verse number one. John says this, the elder unto the elect lady. Now, we understand that term elder in the New Testament is is a synonymous term for that of a bishop or a pastor. It is someone that works and labors in a static place in a in a local church. I, I would be considered I'm just twenty eight years old, so I don't think an elder always denotes I've heard preachers say, Well, no elder's always an older person. Uh but the I think that as we see that term used in the New Testament, I believe it is a, a specific term with connotations. And uh, I think that me as a pastor uh would be able to use that term. Now, I don't use that term. It even makes me uncomfortable when I see uh, you know, they'll do an obituary in a few days. No doubt they'll say what everyone does. They'll call me the Reverend Toby Webb. And, uh, if you've been around me, you know Reverend is the last thing that I am. Uh, so I don't, I don't walk around using that term, but we understand that this term is used to denote someone that is a pastor. Someone that has authority in the local church. Now, John could have said a lot of things. John could have called himself the apostle if he had chosen to. John, no doubt, if he had wanted to, could have called himself the prophet, John. He could have called himself uh, the one whom God, whom Christ loved, the beloved John. But in all of the titles he could have applied to himself, when he writes to this lady, he says, I want you to remember that I'm a pastor. Let me tell you something. As a pastor, there are some things, everything from the word of God is important. Amen. Amen. We're to preach the whole counsel of God. But there are some things that we ought to strive for as pastors in our ministry that we inject and insert into the life of people. And if, we don't, if they don't get anything else, there ought to be a few things we make sure that they get. Because they are such vital importance that it will literally imperil their testimony and their Christian walk if they don't understand these things. Those are the things that John is writing about. And I noticed five of them in this little book of the Bible. Let's just look at them real quick. Five things that John said could not wait, they had to understand immediately. Look at verses 5 and 6. John says this, And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment, that as ye have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. I want to say, number one, that John points to the pressing duty of the believer as being an essential matter in this letter. He says, you know, there's a lot of things that we do. And, you know, around here, we're, we're a busy church. I don't know if you realize that. We're not as busy as some churches. Uh, I, you know, I know some churches that literally every single moment is, is is planned out and they've got something occupied. But we're pretty busy around here. There's a lot of churches around town that from the time that the lights go off on Sunday morning till the time that they get turned on the following Sunday, the building sits cold, the lights stay off. Nobody occupies it. And I don't say that in a critical way, but just to point to the fact that we are a busy assembly. We have lots of things going on. I don't think that's a bad thing. I I think that's a good thing. I think the church ought to be a living thing. Somebody say amen to that. But John says in all of the things that you do in the local church, Whether you are cleaning, whether you are teaching, whether you are doing maintenance, whether you are laboring whether around here, whether you're cooking, you know, I mean, whatever it might be, he says, don't ever forget your primary duty and function in that local body is summarized in this commandment. And he basically says two things. He says, number one, to love the saints, to love the saints. He says, I don't write a new commandment to you, but that which we had from the beginning he says that we what? That we love one another. Let me tell you something. If if we get to the place and I've met people like this where they're just miserable. We all have bad days, amen. And some of us some of us get more than others, amen. We all have bad days. I'm not going to stand up here and lie to you and say that I never get in the flesh. That there's times when uh, that, that there's never times when somebody gets on my nerves or bugs me or or bothers me. I mean, if any pastor tells you that his people never bother him, he's a liar. Somebody say amen to that because he's flesh and bone, just like everybody's flesh and bone. I've got a wonderful church. You all are wonderful people. Uh, God is good to us, but I'm a human being. I get in the flesh. I get out of sorts sometimes. You probably do the very same thing. There's There's probably times when you have bad days, when it's rough, when you get in the flesh, when it's a struggle to show love towards the brethren. But when we get to a place where we literally are doing it out of formality with no care, compassion, or concern for the people in the pews around us, something is deeply, deeply wrong. Part of the reason churches struggle with this is because they do not afford opportunities for fellowship. That's part of the reason we afford lots of opportunities for fellowship around here. You know, the Sunday night thing, and I love that we do that Sunday night thing. You know, that was actually started as a weight loss thing. Does anybody remember that? The best laid plans. <laughs> but you know what that really is? And there's multitudes of people, and some of you in this room could probably testify to this, that you got to know our people in that Sunday night ministry. That's when you sat over there, It's when you talked to people, that's when you found out how many kids people had, where they had worked, where they had retired from, what they liked to do, what their hobbies were. It's where you connected with people and got to know people. You know why a lot of churches have trouble with their folks loving each other? Because they don't know each other. If you don't know one another, I mean, some of us, if you get to know us, you're going to love us less. Amen. But, but primarily speaking, you've got to get to know one another, to love one another. And let me tell you something. When we get to the place where we don't love one another, something is deeply wrong. That's our primary thing, to love the saints. Let me tell you, I, I'm not, I'm, I, I believe in lifestyle evangelism in as much as, as confrontational evangelism is, is basically anemic without, without a lifestyle to back it up. Uh, but, but I'm not a big advocate for, for lifestyle evangelism. The, the preacher that we had the week of revival, he talked about He said, you know, I've never had anybody come up and say, well, I like the way you live. Tell me about Jesus. But I do understand this. Christ made this statement in John 13, 34 and 35. He said it. By the way, you notice how John said, I don't write a new commandment. It's not a new commandment. Listen to what Christ says. He says, a new commandment I give unto you. When John says from the beginning, you know what he's talking about. He's talking about from the beginning of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and from the beginning of the founding of the New Testament church. John's saying we've not changed up our message here because Christ gave that commandment. Christ said, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Then he says this, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have loved one to another. You'd be amazed what a testimony just loving the brethren will do and will be. You know, one of the chief ways that we exhibit that? When we pull out of that driveway and head towards Walridge Road, that's one of the ways we convey that. Because people start to wonder. I'll tell you right now, lost folks don't enjoy going to church. I know a lot of saved people don't enjoy going to church. But when a lost person sees someone that does enjoy going to church, that tells them something. That tells them that's not like all all those dead churches they've been to time and again. Man, we got Easter coming up. Churches will be packed all over this city. No doubt our church will have people in it that would not be here were it not for that calendar day. And I don't discourage that. I encourage that. Because, hey, they may come hear the gospel and be born again. Or they may come and God may stir them to their backslidden condition. And they may get right and get in. I'm not critical of that. But I'm aware that a lot of people this Sunday are going to pack into dead churches just out of formality. Man, what a testimony it is when they come into a place and they say, man, these people love one another. I mean, they didn't, when they go to church, they, they, don't, they don't go to get out. They go to get in. You know, they go to fellowship. They, they go because they love each other and they enjoy spending time around each other. Now, all the love in the world doesn't fix folks' character flaws, and I'm not implying it does. You're going to find people everywhere this world is full of people that get on people's nerves. Amen. And if you're trying to find church where nobody gets on your nerves, just go ahead and sit at home. and You'll probably even bug yourself. Amen? You're always going to have people that are tough. But when we get to the place where we forget that that's one of our primary duties, we have lost sight of one of the chief functions of the New Testament church. This is a body. This is a family. This is a living house. This is the, the, the pillar and, 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 and the truth. I mean, this is a privileged thing we're a part of. I don't necessarily mean by being on Wall Ridge Road or being within these walls, but I mean being part of that bloodwashed throng that God has called out of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son, and now He has knit us together that we might be a testimony to this lost and dying world. He says to love the saints. Then notice the next phrase in verse number six. He says, And this is love. How do we do that? This is love that we walk after His commandments. This is the commandment that as ye have heard from the beginning, you should walk. It. Well, now, is, is that true? We can go back to the gospel record. John tells us this on that very same night that Christ had told the disciples, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Christ also said this in John 14, 15. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. You know the best way we can love folks? By loving Christ. If you don't love Christ, you'll find it very hard to love anyone else. He's so lovely. <laughs> He's so lovely. If you can't love Him, you're not going to love anybody. And how do we convey that love? By living for Him. You'd be amazed how many times the Holy Ghost won't let you be ugly to somebody. <laughs> we were talking a little bit about it uh, on Monday night. This thing, you've purified your souls in obeying the truth uh, through, uh, through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. You know how you love people? You love people by surrendering to Christ. That's how. Because if you try to love them with your love, you're not going to do very good. But if you love them with His love, He loves them even though they're unlovely. And He loved you even though that you were unlovely and unlovable. So as you surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, you know what that's going to do? That's going to cause you to love them with the same love wherewith He loved us. He points to the pressing duty that is upon us. Look at verse number 7. We see a second thing. He says for, and I don't think we need to dismiss the usage of that word for saying it's so important that you love the say that you love the saints, that you live for the Savior, that you keep your focus. Why? For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an Antichrist. Now we're going to see here in a moment that he gives this woman some exhortation to not let these people in her house. No doubt in in New Testament times that this woman probably there are several passages that speak about the importance of charitable hospitality amongst Christians and it's not like today. I mean today everybody's got a you know got got a car and two cars or I mean a house and two cars and you know I mean we're just we got so much prosperity we don't know what to do with it. But at this time in the New Testament church very often the disciples the apostles would be would be traveling and and they would have to find safe haven under somebody's roof. And that's part of the function of the hospitality in the New Testament church. And this woman, no doubt, had written to John and asked him, what should I do about these people who do not confess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh? And so John wants us to understand something about the prophesied deceivers that would be in the New Testament church. Now, again, we're not talking about the people without. We're talking about the people within A lot of the passages that we point to to talk about how bad things are in the world really aren't talking about how bad things are in the world. They're talking about how bad things are in the professing church. For instance, when the Bible says that this, know that in the last days perilous times shall come. Guess what? That is in an ecclesiastical, a pastoral epistle. And when Paul writes that to Timothy, he's not saying you're going to look out one day and the world's going to be on fire. He's going to say you're going to look in the pews one day and it's going to be a mess. And when... John writes this to this lady. She's not pointing outwardly, but she is pointing to people that claim to be Christians, that claim to be teachers of the Word of God. But what does he say? He calls them deceivers and an antichrist. Who are these people? These are people who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Now, I wrestled with this a little bit, and I'll tell you why. Because there is doctrine by explanation, and there is doctrine by implication. What I mean by that is this. When we say, if you believe on Jesus Christ, whosoever shall believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. Now, what does that mean? Well, there is a doctrine of, of explanation in that. Here's Jesus Christ. You have to exercise faith in Him. But but faith in what? What does that faith mean? And you, you exercise it with the expectancy that He will then, then save you, whatever being saved means. Well, in the body of revealed Scripture, in the body of revealed truth, when we hear those names, there is an implied doctrine that is expressed to us. In other words, when you say believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you understand that when it says, name. It's not saying just merely in the phonetical coupling of those words, but rather it is believing upon his power and his person. When you say the Lord Jesus Christ, that means something because there's a lot of folks. Listen, you go south of the border, you'll find lots of folks named Jesus, but none of them are the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Son of God, God in the flesh, that was uh, walked and robed himself in flesh and walked for three and a half years, or for thirty three and a half years, uh, um, amongst this this earth, and for three and a half years ministered. This is the one that revealed himself to be the the Son of God and God in the flesh, that that died a vicarious substitutionary death on Calvary, and that rose again in power on the third day, and that ascended up into the heaven of heavens, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, and ever liveth to make intercession for us. But now let me ask you this: Where is the line? that we draw between expressed or explained doctrine and implied doctrine. I think we must be careful. Here's why. Because if you wanted to take this too far, you could make it to where if someone didn't dot every I and cross every T just exactly like you do, if they didn't wear the same color tie, cut their hair exactly the same way, walk the same way, wear the same brand of suit that you do, then they must be a heretic and they must be an Antichrist. So we must look to the text to reveal to us what exactly this means. Well, I see a few things that I want you to notice. I want to say that one of the things that they are denying is Christ's story, because it calls Him Jesus Christ. Now, when we say Jesus, that is a human name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was what his family would have called him. That's what society would have called him. And when John writes to this lady and says Jesus, that has a definite body of context and narrative attached to it. Could Could I say it this way? The Jesus of the Bible. They may say they worship the Jesus of the Bible, but if their Jesus is not like the Jesus of the Bible, then it's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Mormons worship a Jesus. The, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses have a place in their economy of heresy and apostasy for Jesus. The Roman Catholics have a place for Jesus. But when you begin to line up what they believe about that Jesus, it is not what Scripture reveals about Jesus. They must accept His story. They must accept His Sonship because He's called Jesus Christ. Now, that term Christ is a title. It's the Messiah, the Anointed One. We understand that when we consider that terminology, Christ, it implies several things. It would imply uh, the prophetic nature, the fact that God had foretold that Christ would come into the world, that Christ is the very Messiah, that he's not just a good man, that he's not just an apostle, that he's not just a preacher and a teacher, that he's not one of many, but he's the one and only. He is the very one. He is not a sacrifice lamb. He is the sacrifice lamb for your sins and for my sins and all of the things that he said about Christ, we must accept. Now, again, we understand that some might plead ignorance upon this case. But I would suggest to you that the people that are being pointed to in this verse could plead no ignorance on this place. These people are professing to be teachers. In other words, I know a little child when they come to vacation Bible school, you know, and they hear my little boy, he's been, and I'm excited about it, man. I, and I, want, I just want to brag on our Sunday school teachers, That all of them that are working and laboring. I, I appreciate what you're doing because I'm seeing it in my little boy's life as well. Uh, we'll be sitting around. He's got this little paper that he got that's from, I guess, from down here. Hey, I hope he didn't get it from the JWs or something, but. But he And he'll go through and he'll point. There's crosses. He'll say it's the crosses. He'll talk about Jesus dying on the crosses. And He'll, he'll point to the empty tomb because Easter's coming up. And he'll say, that's the tomb. And he'll point to the rock. He'll say, that's the stone that was rolled away. Just a little fella. But he understands some of those things. But I know my child is not going at his age to understand all of these truths. I understand that. And, and, and God understands that too. But that's not who we're talking about here. We're not talking about a little two, three, four, five year old child in children's church. We're talking about people in the New Testament church that profess to be teachers and pillars and, and pastors and leaders. And if they reject what the Bible says about the Christ, then they are none of his. He says a third thing. I like this. It says Jesus Christ is come in the what? In the flesh. They can't deny his sacrifice. His incarnation or His sacrifice, that He became flesh, that He died in our place. And you know, there's a lot of folks that do. You'd be surprised the number of people. I'm talking about big name preachers. I'm talking about people on your TV. I'm talking about the TV in crowd that reject the substitutionary, vicarious death of the Lord Jesus Christ. They do not believe that He shed His blood for us. They do not believe that He died in our place. I think those people are deceivers and an antichrist. And then he mentions another thing I would say that they can't deny his success. Because it doesn't say that Jesus Christ was come in the flesh. It says Jesus Christ is, present tense, come in the flesh. And that denotes that that very flesh that He walked around for 33 and a half years in, that very flesh has been by the power of God raised from the grave and has been transfigured and has been glorified. And He is even at this moment in that glorified flesh, seated at the right hand of the Father. It was a visible, literal, bodily resurrection. They cannot deny that. And still be saved. Boy, I know. I know. It makes me uncomfortable to say it too, but if the Bible says it, we ought to say it. It cannot deny the resurrection and be born again. It cannot deny it. I would say that we see the mark that betrays, but I would denote the mystery they convey. It says this This is a deceiver and an antichrist. It does not say the antichrist, but it says an antichrist. Isn't that unusual? Isn't that unusual that it says that? Now, these are not just people that are mixed up. These people are deceivers and an antichrist. That means that per- it don't matter if they fill auditoriums. It doesn't matter if they fill stadiums. It doesn't matter if they have all the best-selling books. It doesn't matter. I, and, and I listen, I'm not against filling stadiums. I'm not against having best-selling books. Those things are not bad in and of themselves. But I'm saying just because they have those marks of success that does not vindicate their their teaching and their positions, they may have all of those things. But if they deny these vital elemental truths of the Lord Jesus Christ, these people are not just misguided. They're not just mistaken. They are a deceiver and an antichrist. And what does it say? Listen to what it says in 2 Thessalonians 2.7. It says, for the mystery of iniquity. Now, the context of this is the rise of the antichrist. And Paul says, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let, we believe that, to be the Holy Ghost until he be taken out of the way. Paul said this mystery of iniquity, this global conspiracy to form a one world government and to set on its throne the secular humanist teachings of the Antichrist that deny Christ, that push away all of the things of God. He says even on that day, even when Paul wrote that book, he says it's working even now. You can look around, me me and my brother were talking about it last night, you know, all through. And i got to be careful, I'll get way out in left field and and we'll waste a bunch of time. But let me just say this, that all throughout history, the European continent was ruled by powerful families. When the Industrial Revolution happened, when the fall of the papal states took place, all of a sudden, these families disappeared. What happened to these ruling families? Look what happened in Russia, dynastic, for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. And all of a sudden, the rise of communism and, 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 and the, the squashing of the dynastic regime and the, and the dynastic family. And now, all of a sudden, these people own like 90% of the world. All of a sudden, they've just disappeared. I would suggest to you, and I won't say much more than to say what I'm about to say. I would suggest to you that those people are still in positions of power. I would suggest to you that though secular humanism seems to be the mantra of today, in other words, a belief that, that God does not exist, that what we are is just nothing but dirt and worms lead it up one day when we die and there's nothing after the grave, I would suggest to you that is merely smoke and mirrors hiding the darkest of occult principles that drive the most powerful people in this world. That mystery of iniquity, it's still working. You don't listen. You don't look at what they say they're trying to do. You look at what they are doing. Europe is burning tonight. Why would, why, would, why would European leaders seek to cause such chaos? Well, the reason is because every time you have chaos, the masses of people look to someone to calm that chaos. And there's a power vacuum and a power grab. And all of a sudden, the people behind the scenes, you don't ever see it happen, but their grip gets a little bit tighter. One of these days, all of the masks will be taken off. The Antichrist, he'll wear a mask. Until halfway through the tribulation period. And when that happens, he's going to break the false covenant of peace with the nation of Israel. Paul says he's going to set himself up in the temple of God to be worshipped as God. He'll rip that final mask of secular humanism off and he'll say, I am God and you'll worship me. And in John's day and Paul's day and in this day that we live in, there are deceivers in the in the church, the professing church, that are trying to coax to herd people into a mentality of accepting whatever the status quo is, accepting whatever tolerance demands of us, whatever we must do, not, not listen, not to make peace, but just to maintain peace, to try to keep people from being upset. And I'm going to tell you something, Jesus Christ is an upsetting figure in this world. One of the ways they seek to do that is to rob him of all the truth that the Bible conveys about him. Look at verse number eight. He he denotes the pressing duty. He denotes the prophesied deceivers. But he denotes the present dangers that believers are in. he says, look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Now, I don't think this is, uh, if you read that, it sort of sticks out. It's like he's going one direction, then he goes another direction. And yet in the next few verses, he goes back to the importance of purity and doctrine. Why does he insert this truth in here? The reason is because I believe as he's writing this letter, the, the danger that is imposed upon this lady and her children and upon every local church all of a sudden floods his mind and he must remind them that there are some things we can lose if we're not careful about who we run with. Let me say, first off, there's a danger that we lose our testimony. He says, look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we, have, what? which we have wrought. The things which we've worked for. The things which we have gained. The hard work that we have done. Let me tell you something. We need to count it precious. Precious what we believe. Doctrine is an important thing. Anybody that says doctrine is not important, that they either don't know what they're saying or they're wrong. Because doctrine is of vital importance to the New Testament church. It it constructs the identity of who we are and what we believe in this present world. Doctrine is of vital, vital importance in this world. And we need to be careful about our testimony as it concerns doctrine. We need to to maintain that. There are things other than doctrine, but doctrine is never to be put on the back burner. I don't want a church that's doctrinal but dead. But I don't think you have to choose between those things. I'd say that this body right here is a good example that you don't have to choose between those things. And I'm sure there's some that shout it out louder than we do, but there's a lot of them that don't ever come near the shouting we do, that have the worship that we do, and yet we do not shy away from standing upon the teachings and principles of the whole counsel of God. Doctrine is of vital importance. And let me tell you something, it is a rare thing to take a stand in this day that we live in. And we need to be careful. We need to guard that testimony. It's part of the reason, you see, and I, I don't know, I don't think it's make anybody mad on a Wednesday night. Maybe if we got Sunday morning crowd, it'd make somebody mad. But, but, And I'm not against devotionals. I'm not against people getting helps. I mean, I've got an office that's full of those things. But you need to be careful the kind of devotionals and the kind of teachings and the kind of helps that you allow in your life. You need to be careful the kind of stuff you put through the eye gate when you turn on the TV, the kind of things you put through the ear gate when you turn on the radio. Because let me tell you something, a lot of these people, they may talk a good talk, but when you get down to the brass tacks of what they believe, they fall right within that category. We have a testimony. What should that testimony be? Of believing that we have a Bible and that Bible is perfect. I, I, people tell me all the time, all the time, and some of the people in this room could identify with this because you've come to this area and you, you weren't born here. People tell me all the time, preacher, you wouldn't believe how hard it is to find a King James church. You see, we're King James, so we think they're everywhere. But there's a lot of places that say they're King James. And yeah, they're King James in the pulpit. But they let their, their, their youth program do anything that they want. And, and Vacation Bible School comes around and, and they let it just do anything that they want. Uh, you know, we do this camp. I had somebody tell me the other day, Preacher, it's almost impossible to find a King James Bible camp. And they're absolutely right. A lot of these, listen, a lot of this formalistic crowd, a lot of this crowd that they really, you know, they was ashamed of people that worship like us. A lot of them are way out in the left side of the field. And they've got their pomp and their circumstance. They've got their formality. And it listen, it stretches from coast to coast. And you don't have to go more than five miles to find it in this town that claim to be fundamental, that claim to be old-fashioned, that claim to be King James. But you get into those places and you find out that they stand nowhere near what the Word of God teaches about it. We better hold it precious. We better be careful about who we run with because we can lose that testimony. Let me say number two, that we lose our testimonies. There's a danger of that, but there's danger that we lose our treasures. He says this, but that we receive a full reward, but that we receive a full reward. Now, I don't think he's talking about earthly rewards. I think he's talking about heavenly rewards. And he's saying this, there is a danger in losing some of those rewards. What did Paul say in first Corinthians chapter three? He said, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a what? Reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Now, you can't lose your salvation. But let me tell you, you can lose lose a lot of the things that you've labored and worked for. And more than anything, more than losing those things that are behind, you can lose the things that are before we don't ever talk about because it, it's easy. When, some, when somebody compromises, it's easy to look at what they gain because what they gain is temporal. But it's easy to miss what they've lost because what they've lost is eternal. We need to be careful, cautious of that. I'd like you to look at verse number 9. He gives us the present dangers. He denotes the primary distinction that we need to carry and that we need to notice. He says in verse 9, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. Now, God said that. I didn't say that. God said that if that if that if that overturns the apple cart of your favorite preacher or my favorite preacher, I'm sorry. That's just the way and I'll I'll have to get over it just like you have to get over. It. They may have done a lot of good preaching in the past. They may have been straight in the past. But if they have departed, what is the doctrine? The doctrine that we just talked about from verse number seven, if they depart from that, then they hath not God, they hath not God. He says, he that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. Now, that's just as humbling as the first part of the verse is. Let me tell you why, because there's a lot of guys that I don't like what they do. I don't like the way they do it, and I wouldn't do it the way they do. But they're straight. They know what the Word of God teaches, and they abide by it. And I just got to bite my tongue and hush, because they're a child of God. And we're not to forbid them. We're not. Isn't that what Christ said? They wanted to forbid the man that would not go with him. And he he said, he he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. He said, do not forbid that man. He is gathering with us. He is gathering. Listen, he may not gather the way you gathered. He may not gather just exactly like you would do it. He may start at the other end of the field or he may do something a little different than you do it. But he's working, he's laboring. And I'd say this, it's humbling because it's easy to become Mr. Critical, you know. It's easy to get up and sit back on, on your ivory pulpit and say, i got everything figured out. Well, what is the primary distinction? We notice the absence of this doctrine. And I would just point this out to you. I'm not really going to preach it, but I point out to you that the word truth is found five times in the first four verses. It, it, almost, it is almost to the, to the redundant point of silliness as you read it. Because every few words you're reading truth, 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 truth over and over and over again. What is that truth? I would suggest to you there's a lot of truth in the word of God, but that the truth that John is speaking about is the truth from the word of God about Jesus Christ. And he's saying if they don't abide in that, they do not have God. But we notice an abiding in this doctrine. But if they stay close to that, that tells you that they belong to God and God. He may not be using them the way you'd want them to be used, but he's probably still using them. I'm glad that God's not waiting for me to get sorted out to use me Because I'd never be totally sorted out. Aren't you glad that God's not waiting for you to get... If, if, If God's waiting for you and me to be right on every little thing before He can use us, He'd never use us. But if we'll abide in that... Doctrine, And then notice finally, and I'm done, I'll just say a word about verses 10 and 11. We see the pressing duty. He said this couldn't wait. The prophesied deceivers because they were working already. The present dangers because before he got there, they could lose their testimony or their treasures. The primary distinction because as we operate in the New Testament church, we must hold this as a as a line drawn in the sand. And then he speaks of the proper division we're to make from those people. He says this in verse 10. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine. Let me say this, everybody that comes to you, they bring some doctrine. They bring some doctrine. It's like standards. People say, well, you know, I I just, I don't like that church because it has, you know, standards. Every every place has standards. Listen, you go down to to Faith, Rio, Promise, Redemption, Harvest, Saturday Night, Neon, Rock Concert. If you were to go down there stark naked, they'd have an usher taking you to the parking lot. They have standards. Every place has standards. The question is what those standards are. And the same truth could be conveyed about doctrine. Everybody believes something. Everybody believes something. The question is, what do they believe? If they don't believe anything, you know what they believe? They believe nothing can be known. And that is a doctrine in and of itself. So what doctrine is he talking about? He's talking about the doctrine is revealed from the Word of God. If they come and they don't bring this doctrine, what does he say? He says, receive him not. Receive him not into your house. All the duties and obligations that you may feel are thrust upon you as a Christian, all of those are null and void. Now, I don't think that means we need to be ugly. I don't think that needs, it means we need to be rude. But I'll tell you what I think it does mean. I think it means we don't have to worry about hurting somebody's piddly, tolerant feelings over the fact that we take a stand against bad doctrine. Now, I know people that have a chip on their shoulder. I've been that person, but I've been the guy that's knocked it off of someone's shoulder and got my head bit off. I'm not saying we need to be ugly. I'm not saying we need to be rude. But I'm saying we cannot walk around fearful that someone's going to call us a critic if we speak out against bad doctrine. There will always be. There will always be somebody. Just it, 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 sure as there is always, God always has somebody that will stand up and expose bad doctrine. The devil always has somebody that will stand up and try to guilt and shame that person that exposed it. You mark her down. If you stand up and you say, hey, this fellow over here, this is what he believes, sure enough there will be somebody in this corner stand up and say, who are you to judge? You know, there will always be somebody like, well, you don't, you know, I, 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 I'm not anybody, although one of these days, you know, the, the saints will judge the world. <laughs> But but even beyond that, I don't have to judge. The Word of God has judged. The Word of God has judged. The Word of God has revealed these things. And what are we supposed to do? We're to separate from them. We're to separate from them. Paul said, to come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. We are too separate. It is appropriate, it is scriptural, and it is spiritual to separate from from anti-Christ doctrine people that do not believe that Christ is the Son of God, that the testimony of Scripture concerning Him is true, that He has died in our place, that He has rose in power and glory from the grave. Those people, anybody that casts a shadow of doubt upon them. Hey, we're coming into Easter, right? This is an Easter message, amen? We're coming into Easter. Anybody that has a problem with those doctrines, just let them walk on by. We don't need their money. We don't need their prominence. We don't need their politics. We don't need their promotion. Just let them walk on by. We're to separate from those people. And then notice this, we're to speak out against him. He says this, neither bid him Godspeed. I wondered about that for a lot of years. What does it mean to bid somebody Godspeed? Are you ready? This is what it means. It's going to be real mystical and fantastic. Godspeed. It's a greeting. It's a greeting. He says this, for he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. The only thing I can figure is this. What John is saying is this. When these people come to your house and you turn them away, because evidently she has turned them away. When they're walking off, don't 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 stick your head out the door and say, God bless you, because God ain't going to bless them. And to and you know what more than anything it is, he is saying to not speak out against them is to, by implication, endorse what they believe. Now, I know somebody that can't never speak a good thing about Christ because they're always speaking a bad thing about Antichrist. And I think we have to have a proper measure and balance. Somebody say amen to that. I know. I, listen, I know a lot of I know a lot of prophecy preachers that don't know their way around John three sixteen. And I think something's wrong with that. Amen. I think something's wrong with that. But I think by the same token that we need to understand, it is upon us, not just me as a pastor, but you as a believer, to know what you believe and to stand on what you believe. To know what you believe and to stand on what you believe. Hey, you're gonna go you're gonna go down the way and pick up that devotional. Why don't you find out what that person believes? Find out what that, I'm not, I'm not being critical. If you want to go buy it, go buy a thousand of them. I'm not saying stay away from Lifeway. I bought stuff from Lifeway. Uh, go ahead, go down to Cedar Springs. That's fine. But you ought to find out what they believe. You'd be amazed what all these characters believe. You'd be shocked. What? Well, and I'm not talking about they're not King James. Everybody knows they're not King James. I'm not talking about they're not old timey. Everybody knows they're not old timey. I'm not talking about they're not Christ honoring music. Everybody knows they're not Christ honoring music. I'm talking about some of these people. They don't know who Jesus is. They don't know what Jesus did. They don't know where Jesus is now. They don't know what they believe. And yet we shovel them into our devotional lives, buddy by the bucketful. We need to be careful. We ought to not even bid them Godspeed. We ought, we ought to not because remember we ought to, lest we lose those things which we have wrought, we have a testimony. And so we ought not let that lost individual down because let me tell you something, uh, that lost individual may say, "You know, my, this Christian I work with, he likes to read after this guy. I wonder what this guy believes." What happens when they crack open one of his books? And it ain't the book you've got because, you know, the book you've got is, is middle of the road enough that it don't offend no one. But they find the book that he's got where he's denying and denouncing all of these fundamental truths of Christianity. What's that lost person going to think? They're going to think, well, that's what, they, that's what they believe. That's what they believe. When you, when you do that, you yoke your name to whatever that person believes. Let me tell you something. That's part of the reason I like being independent. I'm not an independent Baptist because I hate Southern Baptists. I don't hate Southern Baptists. I've got family that's Southern Baptist. I've got family that's Presbyterian. I've got family that's Methodist. i I, I got one poor old fellow in my family said that he'd be Greek Orthodox if he picked something. Amen? I'm not independent Baptist. You know why? Because the only thing I want to be yoked to is Jesus Christ and this King James Bible and the local assembly. It's the only thing I want to be yoked to. I don't trust anybody else. And I have trouble trusting the local assembly. Somebody say amen to that. I'm not interested in any of that. And we ought, we ought to understand these are things that can't wait. These, these are not secondary things. They're so important that John said, before I even see you face to face, you must know these things because you must guard them and you must shore them up. Because our testimony and our power in this lost and dying world, our influence in this lost and dying world hinges upon these very things.